News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's a lot of concern these days about how fast some things are progressing, like artificial intelligence, for instance. Now, we rely on science to do all sorts of things, medical breakthroughs, want to learn about the universe, want to make our worlds easier to navigate. But is science saving us or is it going to cause us maybe some future problems? Well, Lord Martin Rees is an astronomer royal, a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, and the author of If Science Is to Save Us and joins us now to talk about that. Hello and thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning. Good to be in touch. Is science going to save us? Well, it's up to us, and that's what my book is about. The stakes are getting higher because science is empowering us more. We depend on it every day, and we are, as a result, in an interconnected world where disasters in one place can spread. And so what we've got to do is to harness the benefits and minimize the downsides, and that's a big challenge. And uh, my book discusses the uh, issues but also it discusses the scientific community and how that community needs to engage with the public and the press and with politics in order to ensure that uh, the best advice is received. You said if it is. What, what is the if there for? What does that mean? Um, well, I mean, things can go disastrously wrong. Uh, we know that it's very hard to uh, control individuals and uh, we are in a world where a few people empowered by modern technology, um, bio or cyber, uh, can produce uh, global catastrophes. And so the challenge to governance, I think, is very great indeed. And perhaps I could distinguish the two different kinds of threats that we have to Mm -hmm. contend with. Um, There's the kind which... um, Uh, are going to affect the world gradually and predictably, but long-term. And the most obvious one here is climate change. And the problem there is to uh, uh, energize politicians who have urgent things to worry about. So they should also uh, prepare and try to alleviate uh, these long-term threats like climate change. But there's also uh, another uh, class of uh, Uh, threats which are more emergencies and we need to ensure that we can deal with them. Uh, Terrorist attacks, um, cyber attacks which shut down the electric grid in a large area, things of that kind. And so uh, science has to be engaged with the public and we have to ensure that the public is on side, the public appreciates what science can do and what can go wrong. Where does um, artificial intelligence fit into all of that? Um, Well, it's one of the fastest uh, developing uh, areas of science, Um, as your introductory comments indicated, uh, even in the last couple of weeks, we've had some uh, uh, exciting developments. And this is an example of something which is uh, going to change the world. And it clearly has a lot of benefits. Um, And uh, on the other hand, it can spread lots of misinformation, etc., And, of course, there are worries that if the machines have uh, hidden bugs in them, uh, then things can go wrong in a way that's very, very hard for us to correct. So uh, the stakes are getting higher because of things like that. And we know already how much our worlds have been changed by uh, smartphones and social media, etc., how politics has been changed. And the change will be even greater, I think, when we have these more advanced uh, intelligence computers. 
And so the arguments that you're making here in terms of the things that we need to do to make sure we we turn out all right, do you see those steps being taken? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, uh, we've got to ensure they are taken. The problem is that many of them are long term. And if, if they are long term, we've got to ensure that the politicians uh, rate them high enough to do something about them. And the trouble is that scientists tend to be rather sort of subdued people. They don't interact with the wider public, except in a few cases. Uh, we need more evangelists. But in the context of uh, things like climate change, I say in my book that uh, we owe a lot to uh, uh, four very different global influencers who have raised public consciousness of these. And I would say these include um, uh, the Pope, uh, our secular Pope David Attenborough, Bill Gates <laughs> and Greta Thornburg. I think uh, most people have heard of those people and I think they have made the public care more about climate change and environmental preservation and uh, if politicians know that voters care and they won't lose votes by some measure, then they'll do it. So I think scientists have to uh, bang on themselves and interact with politicians, but they've got to ensure that the public understands what the uh, threats and opportunities are. Right. Some of the things that you call for, though, in your book, I mean, it, it's a tough time to be suggesting them. For instance, you're saying, you know, nations need to do more international cooperation, you know, give each other more chances to share things. I, I'm not sure we're in a time where that's going to happen. Well, we've got to make sure we get back into that time because, of course, there are many things that have to be handled internationally that don't respect national borders. I mean, obviously, everything to do with uh, climate and uh, biodiversity does. Um, but the other point which worries me, and this goes back to uh, artificial intelligence, is that we have these global conglomerates uh, which span the world, um, a few in the US and some in China, um, and uh, uh, they are really very hard to tax properly by any nation and very hard to regulate properly. And so one of the points that um, I would urge very strongly is that we try to set up international bodies um, to regulate uh, these uh, vast commercial conglomerates, just as we have uh, the International Atomic Energy Authority to regulate nuclear power stations and such like. And of course, the World Health Organization to try and uh, 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 predict pandemics and control them. Okay, so these there's a lot of ifs that you have here, Lori. So absolutely, do yes. you see any progress being made on this on these fronts? Um, well, as I say, I do think there's progress in taking climate seriously, thanks to the influencers who have raised public awareness, and uh, I think the same thing has to happen. Um, in these other contexts. I, so, so I don't think we should be uh, fatalistic and pessimistic. I think uh, uh, there is effective regulation of uh, um, atomic energy and we need effective regulation of um, uh, the cyber world. And so uh, let's go for it. How problematic do you think artificial intelligence is at this point? Um, well, I think at the, at the moment it's, uh, uh, it's not too problematic. I mean, uh, it, I think there's a lot of hype about getting superhuman intelligence soon. And although, of course, um, uh, in many respects, uh, the machines are uh, superhuman in their terms of memory and their speed of operation, um, that doesn't mean that it's general superhuman intelligence. That's going to come a long way. And um, 
they will be intelligent in a way, but never quite like humans. Uh, an analogy I give is that in 1900, if you were talking about a flight, um, you might have thought, well, um, if uh, we develop flight, uh, it's got to be something that flaps its wings. And of course, uh, uh, planes don't flap their wings, they have a different technology. And similarly, uh, this kind of uh, artificial intelligence is not going to be anything like the uh, uh, flesh and blood intelligence that uh, is manifested in our brains. Um, so it will be um, uh, able to do some things better than us, but some things less well. But the important thing is that we keep control and also that we don't allow it to become so dominant. And uh, in um, individual cases, like uh, when you're um, sent to prison or recommended for surgery or even uh, denied credit from a bank, um, it's not enough to be told that the computer says this and the computer is usually reliable. You feel you're entitled to uh, uh, have an answer that you could be given by a real human being. We've got to keep that in all the new uh, areas of life where computers are becoming important. And we've got to avoid the situation when they become so pervasive uh, that uh, a uh, collapse or failure of them, whether natural or uh, due to a cyber attack, uh, causes a cascading disaster. That seems like the big if to me there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, we're glad to be with you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the countdown is on to the coronation of King Charles at Westminster Abbey in London. Now, the final preparations are taking place. And remember, we haven't seen this for, what, 70 years? And it's all going to happen in a little under 48 hours. Our Global News European correspondent, Redmond Shannon, is outside Westminster Abbey this morning and joins us now. Redmond, what's happening? Good morning, Sammy. Well, you might not be able to hear, but there are helicopters overhead. There are flags flying. There are... Uh, machines lifting. It's the final preparations are being uh, uh, put to, put in place here in Westminster Abbey with uh, the world media gathered as always. It is very much reminiscent of the scene uh, around six months ago or eight months ago when the Queen died, but because we're outside the Abbey again for the coronation, but of course a very different atmosphere, a very much more celebratory at- atmosphere here now. Um, and Prince Charles Father King Charles. There you go. It takes eight months and you still can't get used to calling him King Charles. King Charles has been in the Abbey uh, this week rehearsing. There have been rehearsals of the procession going from Buckingham Palace to the Abbey and back again along that route. The security is enormous. There will be, along that two and a half kilometre route, there will be nine police officers alone just on the route securing that on Saturday for what is, as you say, a once-in-a-lifetime event for most people. Um, over the last millennium, we have seen 39 coronations at this abbey. Amazing. So that's averaging about one every 25 years. This is the first in 70 years. It is something so many royal watchers are anticipating, um, but also being anticipated by non-royal watchers. Along the route on Saturday, we know that there will be a protest from anti-monarchist groups here in the U.K., police warning them that should they disrupt it in any way, the new law that just came into the UK this week will give police more powers to make arrests. So they're they're ready um, for any possible disruptions, as well as, of course, the potential of any security threat, be it from a terrorist attack or anything like that, that eventuality. But with 9,000 police officers just lining the route, 
Um, it should be a, a very safe place, but highly secured uh, for this event like nobody has ever seen. I mean, the, the level of yeah. security is, is just truly immense. I can imagine. Okay, so what do we know? About, how, how different is this coronation going to be? How has King Charles kind of put his stamp on it? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, so much of a coronation is about tradition, about maintaining the continuity. So we will see the changes. We will see the, the, the similarities in using the same regalia, the same um, uh, orb, the, the chair, St. Edward's chair that is from the 1300s is what he will sit in. There will be so much that has continued centuries and centuries, but there will be changes too. We will also see um, some changes to how the ceremony is conducted in terms of the people who are uh, sitting in the audience. There were 8,000 in the audience for Queen Elizabeth uh, 70 years ago. 2,300 this time. It will still be full, but there won't be the uh, overflow bleachers, if you will, inside the Abbey. So a little different but a lot of it very much the same as it has been for centuries. Okay, and what about the Canadian delegation? What do we know about that? Yes, that, the details announced. Of course, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, are coming alongside, of course, the Governor-General, Mary Simon, and her husband, Rich Fraser. We'll have the leaders of the three main representative groups of Indigenous Peoples, Assembly of First Nations, the Inuit Peoples, and the Métis will be represented. We will have youth leaders uh, for the next generation of Canadians who will be five youth leaders invited. We will have two Canadian astronauts, Jennifer Seide and Jeremy Hansen, of course, mm-hmm. who's heading to the far side of the moon on Artemis two next year. Uh, uh, Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan will be there, and we will have the former Canadian High Commissioner to the UK, Jean Charette, who is now the head of Canada's public service. They will all be part of the Canadian delegation among the 2,300 people in the crowd on Saturday. Wow. Well, have fun, Redmond. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you, Simi. Have a good day. Bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there is a surefire way to get people amped up. You show them the garbage that gets left behind after people get together in a park. And of course, it happened last weekend with the warm weather that we saw. People flocking in particular to English Bay and enjoying themselves, like really enjoying themselves. And apparently completely forgetting to clean up after themselves. Lots of open drinking, too, from what we heard, when technically it's not allowed there at that location and lots and lots of garbage. So if we are allowed to drink in certain parks now, which is the case, what are we going to do about enforcing the rules around where those parks are and about keeping the parks clean? So let's talk more about this. Joining us now is Ben Ambastriansky, is the vice chair of the Vancouver Park Board for ABC. Brennan, thank you for joining us. Hi, Sumi. Thanks for having me. So are there concerns about this, given what we saw this past weekend, like people clearly drinking where they're not supposed to be drinking? Well, the the whole uh, drinking in parks thing is uh, doesn't come into effect until beginning of June. And so people are getting a head start. You know, we had the, the first uh, wave of like sunshine and warm weather on the weekend. Uh, so everybody was like naturally starved for sunshine. So yeah, the crowds were uh, were incredibly large on the weekend. Are there concerns, though, about getting ahead of this? Like, if we know people are going to be out there doing this, like, what about the plan for garbage? What about the plan for policing these situations? Uh, well, the the park board does take, uh, you know, it does take a, a proactive approach to to getting in front of it. Uh, you know, they, they had the bins down there uh, in the morning. They all emptied it. They increased service visits. 
um, they increased the number of like garbage cans that were out. Uh, so yeah, there's you know there's obvious concern that uh, you know more people are going to be down at the park, more garbage, and so uh, the park board's trying to get ahead of it. Uh, what happened on the weekend was unfortunate. It just there, there were just that many people that the system got a bit overloaded. Okay, so what will happen as a result of that? Well, look, for the most part, you know, people were doing the right thing. So even when the, bin, the garbage cans were full, uh, people were, like, stacking their, their garbage uh, next to it, you know, so to kind of keep it, a, like, at least a, a bit uh, tidy. Um, the real problem was the people that didn't actually uh, take their garbage away. Right. Like it's a pretty it's a pretty basic practice. And the expectation is that if you bring garbage down to a beach that you're going to you're going to uh, bring it with you. I mean, that's the one design fault of a garbage can is that the user has to actually put something in it. And the problem wasn't necessarily that there was too much garbage. It was that it, where it was left. People left it all over the sand. They left it all over the, the grass. And that was just inconsiderate uh, by the beachgoers. So what will be done to help out with that? Well, there's education. Um, there's education coming. So uh, improved signage, increased rangers, uh, increased service visits, uh, and increased um, uh, garbage cans and, and other uh, waste management. Uh, so all that is part of the plan uh, to uh, allow people to drink responsibly in certain parks uh, across the city. And there's a limited pilot on a small number of beaches where that's going to be the case as well. Okay, so is that one of the beaches? Is English Bay going to be one of those beaches? Uh, no, uh, English English Bay and Sunset uh, are not actually part of the um, alcohol and parks or beach pilot. And so that didn't really play like a, a factor in that behavior on the weekend. Um, and so, like I'm a West End resident, I would like to see... Uh, more enforcement on that. Uh, the Rangers uh, do a good job as like an ambassador, um, but there were just too many people. Uh, and there weren't, you know, uh, I don't like to have the cops involved. Like it's more of a, you know, I want a, a festive, vibrant atmosphere down there. Right. You know, to enjoy. So for residents and guests to like enjoy the beaches. Um, but there's a responsibility for beach goers. Like they're the ones that are responsible for picking up after themselves. And it's a real common courtesy to everybody else in the city that if you take garbage down to the beach or the park, that you take it with you when you leave. Yeah, that certainly didn't seem to happen. Okay, so there's more education coming on that front. What about the drinking aspect there, Brennan? I heard from a, quite a few people, actually, who said they, they witnessed a lot of like underage drinking, clearly people who were not of age that were even drinking down there. So what kind of enforcement will there be on that front? Uh, well, I didn't see any underage drinking. Uh, I was down there. Now, mind you, I wasn't checking IDs. Um, but, uh, you know, this, the alcohol in parks and beaches is for responsible drinking, which means that people have to be of age. Uh, so if there's people that are underage drinking, it's not like they're already ignoring rules. Uh, so yeah, um, that's the kind of thing that I'd like to see, uh, personally more, uh, more enforcement on. Okay. So I think what people really want to hear is that they want to hear that, okay, we know there was a problem and we're going to have more rangers out, we'll be patrolling, and we'll have more garbage. So can is that going to happen? Yeah, that's the plan, absolutely. Uh, like, it's already baked into the into the pilot and uh, on the beaches and on the uh, 
in parks. So an increase in service uh, in terms of garbage cans, ranger patrols, uh, new signage, uh, and having more ambassadors down there uh, providing the education uh, to the people. Uh, we're also going to encourage uh, positive social pressure where, you know, the expectation is like if you bring uh, alcohol or food down to uh, any park or beach uh, that you do the courteous thing and take it out. Uh, it's not a big ask, but it's one of the expectations if you're going to use our beautiful parks. Uh, and uh, the, the expectation for people in Vancouver is if you see people like leaving garbage, um, you know, that's say something. Okay, so if that's the plan, when is the plan going to be put into place? Uh, so everything is, uh, like, they're in the planning phase now. Uh, they're already, like, under the ABC, uh, with the ABC commissioner joining the park board, there's already been an increase in service. So you can walk around, you know, any park and beach and see, like, it's in better condition than it was this time last year. Um, there's more garbage cans. There's more service happening. Uh, and even, like, extending out to, uh, like, field sports, like all those big parks. Right. Every A-grade field was maintained this year, every B-grade field. So you're talking like across the city, uh, parks and beaches are a lot cleaner now than they were last year. And uh, and that's because of increased service. And that it, that's expected to continue uh, when the uh, new um, allowance for alcohol and parks and the pile on the beach uh, starts from June 1. Okay, so if we're in the planning stages now, then, I mean, we saw this coming. How soon is this going to be rolled out? Well, June 1. Uh, so, I mean, there are already steps up in so not, uh, levels of service. Yeah, not for the long weekend, though. I'm thinking that, yeah, that May long weekend gets incredibly busy, especially if the weather is good. Uh, well, the park board crew and, and city sanitation, they're, they're stepping up, um, like monitoring and service visits in all the high traffic locations. Uh, throughout the summer, especially when there's uh, when there's an expected spike, like a, a long long weekend. Okay, so in the meantime, then Brennan, you think that if if we see somebody leaving something behind or making a mess, that you think it's fair to say something to that person? Look, there's polite ways of reminding people, you know, to throw their garbage out, uh, and it's not a big ask. You can see that at other beaches around the city, uh, like you go down to Rec Beach, and there's, there's a community down there. And everyone packs out what they pack in. It's not a big ask. The expectation on everybody in the city is if you go down to the park, take your garbage with you. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks, Amy. That's Brennan Bastiavansky, who's the vice chair of the Vancouver Park Board for ABC, talking about preparations for crowds at the beaches, particularly from after what we saw at English Bay this past weekend. It was nuts. I mean, yeah, sure, it was the first warm weekend of the season, but it was crazy. Like, not enough garbage containers. Garbage was overflowing. People just left the garbage everywhere. Lots of open drinking where, yes, okay, there's going to be drinking allowed in parks, but not that park. And where was the enforcement on that? So clearly, we need to step that up. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there are an awful lot of people out there who seem to have given up on the housing market, as in, just forget about the idea of ever owning a home. I can't blame them with the way things are, right? It does feel kind of hopeless, but it's such a sad situation. How did we get here? Well, one of the more popular arguments is that we simply haven't built enough new homes over the past few decades to keep up with demand. But what if it was more than that? 
Ricardo Tranjan joins us now, a senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and author of The Tenant Class. Ricardo, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Do you think it's more than that? It's, it's more than we just haven't built enough supply? It's absolutely more than that. Uh, building enough more supply, it's necessary, but it's not a sufficient uh, solution to the problem. Um, housing is built on land, and land is the most contentious, the most common source of conflict in human societies. And so we cannot forget that fact. We cannot forget that there has been uh, political disputes about who gets to live and own what for a very long time. And what we see right now, in a way, is just um, one more iteration of that. So how does that play into our housing market? How has that impacted us here? Well, it plays in the fact that um, we have been um, misleadingly um, led to believe that there's a housing crisis, right? And when we talk about the crisis, it seems that it's something that was unexpected. It seems that it's something that um, it is just going to happen for a certain, you know, period of time because crises, you know, have a beginning and an end. It also kind of leads us to believe that everyone is negatively impacted, or that most people are negatively impacted, like the health crisis we had recently. And all of that crisis talk um, kind of takes us away from understanding the fact that some people um, are tremendously benefiting from the way the housing market is organizing. Um, they have seen their wealth increase quite significantly over the past decade. They have businesses that are prospering and their margins of profits are increasing. Businesses that did well even during the pandemic. Um, and there's a smaller segment of the population, namely uh, those who rent or those who like to buy a house at one point, who are negatively impacted. So it's not a crisis that impacts everyone. It's just a dynamic, a power dynamic, where some people are um, getting a chance to, to enrich through the housing market and others are uh, experiencing housing insecurity. So how do we fix that? Well, the way we fix that, uh, the book shows that uh, since before Confederation, uh, tenants had to organize and create political power and create momentum and push back against uh, landlords, against developers, against governments uh, that have um, more often than not sided with landlords and developers and their interests rather than the interests of tenants and working class and families. And when, when and there were some gains in throughout this like, very actually inspired um, history of tenant organizing in Canada, uh, which unfortunately hasn't been documented enough. Um, there has been some wins, and wins usually means um, the government regulates the amount of profit that it can be made through housing. Um, governments invest more in non-for-profit housing, which is the only housing that is truly affordable to, to low and moderate incomes. Um, Governments just ring in the market and say, no, you know, it can't all be for profit. It can't be a casino. These are places where people live. These are places where people, you know, raise their families. You can't just, you know, treat this as a Wall Street kind of thing. And, and, and there has been some gains, and, but also not always have been successful. No, they have not. Ricardo, thanks for talking to us about it this morning.
Thank you for having me. That is Ricardo Trangent, who's a senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, author of The Tenant Class, believes the housing market, the game, thinks it's more rigged than we realize. The idea being that, okay, yeah, we haven't built enough supply, but it's also all geared towards investment rather than finding a place to live. I've heard that argument. I know many people have made it too. This is Mornings with Simi. I wanted to talk about being ready for an emergency this morning and for good reason. I mean, just look at what is happening in parts of our province with flooding concerns right now. So joining us now is Bowen Ma, who's BC's Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, first up, let's, let's talk about what is going on with the flooding situation there. How is the province preparing to help? Yeah, so what we've been expecting um, this year uh, as a result of climate change is that we would see some of these extreme weather events and natural hazards hit British Columbia earlier in the year than in years prior. So it's a big part of the reason why we've actually started our seasonal preparedness briefings uh, with community members and with the public earlier than ever before. Last month, uh, our ministry pre-deployed hundreds of thousands of sandbags across the province in high-risk areas, and we're working with communities on response to high-stream advisories and water flows, and so temporary uh, retaining walls and emergency flood barriers were sent to communities like Cache Creek and Grand Forks uh, ahead of the flows that we're seeing this week. Okay, so that's all been done already, I understand. So what about using like an an alert system? Is that going to be used this year? Yeah, so the province is uh, capable and prepared to issue uh, intrusive broadcast alerts for communities. We tend to do this on request of the community and the decisions to, to make them usually come from the community themselves. Oftentimes in smaller communities as well, uh, the residents are paying attention already to what their local governments are saying. So, But it is possible, yes, absolutely, the province is able to issue uh, broadcast intrusive alerts right to people's phones when, when needed. Right. But then so people need to know, though, if you get one, it's because your community leaders asked for one. Yes, absolutely. We would only issue a broadcast intrusive alert directly to people's phones when the danger was absolute, was imminent and serious. So it's not something that people can ignore. Um, it's also not something that people can uh, opt out of. Uh, I know that sometimes getting the Amber Alerts in the middle of the night, we do hear from folks that say, you know, when we want to opt out of this broadcast intrusive alert, they, you cannot opt out of it. It is a mandatory thing. It will wake you up in the middle of the night if necessary, and it's because there's likely to be an emergency happening. Right. Okay. And what about, I don't, one of the things that we've struggled with in the past is to make sure people get the help that they need when they need it in terms of if they're out of their homes, if they, you know, end up in a sheltered area because of flooding or fire. So what is this digital registration system that's been launched? So the evacuee registration and assistance program, uh, we launched it around this time last year. It basically allows people to pre-register for emergency support services. Uh, the, the truth of it is that emergency support services traditionally and still in many communities is actually issued uh, by paper uh, where we provide vouchers to help 
um, evacuees access, lodging, food, uh, clothing, transportation services. However, with the advent of technology, we've been able to actually update that system. And so individuals across the province are able to pre-register the, with the evacuee registration and assistance program. And what it means is that if there is an evacuation that takes place, you're already in the system and you're actually able to get emergency support services uh, directly e-transferred into your bank account to support you during that evacuation. Okay, so if people live in a flood zone right now, that's probably a good idea. Absolutely. And I would actually recommend every person in the province to go ahead and pre-register for that system. Now, having said that, I do have to caution that if you are living in a community that hasn't onboarded in the system yet, they will probably still default to paper vouchers. Um, But the vast majority of the population lives in a community that has already onboarded to this digital system. Okay, so then with this digital system, what is the difference? And so you, when the province provides money in an emergency, you get the immediate interact e-transfer? Yes, so what happens in an evacuation situation is a community, a local government, a municipality, a First Nation will issue the evacuation order. They will contact the province for emergency support services, and we will provide the funding that is required to provide lodging, food, clothing, transportation, those kinds of emergency needs to their community members. Now, if they are on the emergency, uh, the evacuee registration assistance program, the digitized version, then we'll be able to actually e-transfer that funding directly to people's bank accounts from which they can draw that money to, to use um, for to pay for their hotel and any other basics they need during an evacuation. If the community is not on the digital system, and we do uh, and we are working with communities to get every community on that digital system, they will likely have to set up a reception center um, within which they will register people for the services. They'll provide paper vouchers that uh, can be used at uh, certain businesses. It certainly sounds like, though, as you were saying, this is now like planning for these types of emergencies, wildfires, flooding. It's It, it sounds like it goes on year round. This is not something we scramble for now at the last minute. Yes, it used to be that emergencies uh, like wildfires and floods, um, we called it the the spring-summer hazard season. But now what we're seeing is different hazards hit British Columbians all year round as a result of climate change. So we saw the atmospheric river events of 2021 actually happened in the fall as a result of a storm. And we've seen um, extreme cold events and ice storms actually impact people's travel just this past winter. And so we are on quite high alert all all year round now. Um, But the most uh, active season continues to be the spring when the freshets come. So that's when the temperatures rise and the snow melts. And then we get heavy precipitation on top of that, um, resulting in high stream flows in the in the waters and also in the summer when we get a lot of wildfires. But we are seeing wildfires already. Um, and so it is, it is these are very challenging times, especially for smaller communities in the interior. And the truth is that uh, we are expecting that temperatures uh, continue to rise in the interior in the short term followed by heavy rain and possible thunderstorms. And so it is likely to get uh, worse before it gets better for some of these communities that are actively experiencing flooding right now. Are you worried about the next couple of weeks? I think I am always, uh, you know, I, 
I and, and many community members uh, across the province, I think we we are always watching the weather, especially in communities where um, where flooding ha- has taken place in the past. Um, but it is also uh, to the credit of these communities uh, when when emergencies do happen, uh, the entire community pulls together, and it is. Uh, I am always in awe at the kind of response that happens on the ground, um, where we as a province are, are there to support them, of course, with emergency flood assets and funding, but a lot of the hard work is actually done by residents on the ground. Well, thank you so much for that. Lots of information for people to get. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. A little history lesson for us now. The Simon Fraser University football program had been around since 1965. It's a long time. The first football coach and the, and the first athletic director, actually, was a man named Lauren Davies. In fact, his grandson was also a former star quarterback at SFU. And that grandson, now the running backs coach with the Calgary Stampeders. Oh, and he is speaking out about what has been going on. So joining us now is J.R. Davies to talk more about this. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey there. Uh, thanks for having me on this morning. I Boy, appreciate it. You, well, you've got a long history with that football program, don't you? Yeah, it, it definitely uh, runs deep, that's for sure. So, um, yet, uh, yeah, very proud of the program. And unfortunately, it's a tough situation they're in right now, but... Um, hoping that the necessary leadership will come forward and uh, solve the problem. Yeah, what did you think when you heard the news about the cancellation? Um, I was shocked, you know, it, it, but for some ways I've seen it coming for years that um, the football program's been underfunded up there uh, compared to the teams they play against. And you kind of think, you know, as Canadians, do we just not, uh, why is that? SFU is a budget of hundreds of millions of dollars um, in their overall operating budget, yet we fund our athletes and treat them uh, on a lesser degree than the teams they got to play against. So, yeah, to me, it made no sense. Um, uh, but I kind of saw this coming. And, of course, uh, the way that uh, it's kind of come down, the timing of it hasn't been good for the student-athletes right now during their exam uh, time at SFU when it got canceled and uh, preparing for the next season. So, yeah, it's been really been tough. Can we talk a little bit more about how you, you saw this coming and that whole funding issue? Like, what do you mean by that? What was the issue with the funding versus the other teams in the conference? Yeah, so if you look at, like, the, the SFU, of course, they're very unique. They're playing the NC2A, and um, they uh, published, the great thing about the NC2A is they published their, their financials. So you can look them up, and you can kind of see that the average Division II program is operating for football at about $1.3, $1.4 million U.S. And uh, SFU is by varying reports that you know have been filed in the last little while. SFU said they're about eight hundred thousand dollars Canadian. So that does you know when you look take at the exchange rate, it, it makes it tough to our. Now, at least we have eleven. We play with the same amount of players on the field, but as far as uh, the amount of coaches and recruiting, uh, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes uh, that uh, our athletes uh, that need. So it, it's been tough. So how can a team be expected to compete against money like that? Yeah, well, and that's why uh, uh, Mar Doman, the owner of the BC Lions, has been uh, amazingly supportive uh, in coming forward and, and uh, raising money um, and, so, and wanting to say, let's, let's find a solution to this and fix this. So, and, and we live in Vancouver, and Vancouver is a very uh, wealthy city. Um, so the amount that, uh, of money, there is money out there, uh, it's a it's job to uh, just put it all together. What kind of a difference do you think this kind of program can make, JR? Like, I know it made a huge difference for you. You spent your whole career so far kind of coaching all over the place, haven't you? 
Yeah, I did. Um, I've been to this, you know, I'm um, currently coaching in the CFL, but I've spent as a, many years as a scout down in Texas um, uh, for the Calgary Stampeders, played at played SFU. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely been all over. And uh, being, being able to talk to people from different parts of Canada uh, that I've met over the years, it's amazing how much this is uh, not just a BC story or a Vancouver story that they've canceled the football program, but it's a national news story. Uh, there's even people in the U.S. that have been talking about it. Uh, that I I know down there, and it's full and thirsting to ask. They're like, "What what's going on at SFU?" They ask me. That. So oh, so good. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a news story that's gone past uh, Burnaby Mountain. It sure has. What was it like for you as a kid to go there and play football there? I, I mean, it was it was really exciting. Obviously, my grandfather uh, found the program in 1965, and uh, being up being able to play there as a quarterback, it was amazing. Um, but, you know, when he founded the program, uh, his biggest thing was to give Canadians opportunities. And um, I think uh, at the time, uh, SFU kind of set a course where uh, they were going to do something that was kind of foreign to Canadian schools, was they were going to give uh, scholarships to men and women athletes. And uh, that's what he did. And so it kind of created a, um, a legacy there for the program and what they believed in giving uh, opportunities to uh, Canadians, which Fortunately, if they cut the football program, they're cutting half of the opportunities for uh, football players in the province of BC. So uh, it, it's tough. Uh, 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 SFU is also a very blue-collar uh, university. We produce a lot of teachers, firefighters, policemen. Uh, we don't. We haven't had a law school for many years, or a law school or medical school like we're about to have, uh, like they do up by UBC. But um, you know, SFU is kind of a, a blue-collar university. Yeah, that's what I've always found, too, which is what makes it unique and special, I think, which makes it so valuable as well. I feel like it's it felt more approachable for a lot of people. Now, did you ever talk to your grandfather about football at the school? Like, what was it like being the, the founder of that program? What are the challenges that he faced? Um, there was always times where, I mean, there's um, budget cuts and uh, ups and downs. There's always going to be those times. But I think his leadership... Uh, was important, and I think that's what uh, SFU needs right now is the leaders to come together and solve the problem because uh, 10,000 people have signed the petition uh, to keep the program. Um, and so, you know, his leadership, uh, I think that's one of the biggest things about being around him is understanding his leadership and his connections and involving um, other people as well, stakeholders, uh, reaching out to uh, different people in the community. Those relationships at the end of the day uh, go a long ways, and uh, he was able uh, you know, to build those relationships, um, you know, successfully over many years. Are you hopeful that something might change here? Yeah, definitely. Um, there was, you know, there's been two MLAs now in Victoria and the provincial legislature that have called against the cancellation. There's been two MPs now in, in Ottawa in the floor of parliament of uh, Carrie Lynn Finley in South Surrey, White Rock, and then Peter Julian, New West Burnaby, uh, CFL Board of Governors, Commissioner of the CFL, Randy Ambrose, the CFL Players Association, the Mayor of Burnaby, and the list goes on and on, the Student Society. Um, I think it's, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, uh, there'll be, the leaders will come together and um, help. Uh, obviously, there's, there's a, enough support for uh, continuing the program, and uh, they still had another season to play this fall. They still had the uh, game scheduled. So um, I, I'm hopeful that the leadership, the leaders will come together, like uh, Selena Robinson, um, the uh, Minister of Post-Secondary in B.C., uh, Joy Johnson and Angie LaMarche is the SFP Board of Governors um, chair. Hopefully they'll come together and um, and do the right thing. I hope so too. All right. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Hey, awesome. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Lots of concerns about our legal system these days, right? And people want to know, how do we stop catch and release? A lot of people think that we just need to work harder to ask judges to keep certain people behind bars. But is it really as easy as that? Well, no, say some of the lawyers. Uh, Aleem Bormal Jones is now president of BC's Canadian Bar Association. Aleem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I know there's been a lot of concern in the public these days about catch and release. What did you want people to know about all of these concerns? Well, first of all, I, we don't agree with the term catch and release. Uh, that's not what is happening. Uh, just to explain, the judges make laws, judges, sorry, make their decisions based on the law. So they're applying the Criminal Code of Canada and the interpretations provided by the higher courts, the Supreme Court of Canada, our country's highest court. The code is enacted by the federal government. Judges cannot make decisions on popular or personal opinions or policy directions from the government. Uh, in order to change how a bail works in this country, you would need to amend the criminal code. Of course, you have to do so in a way that is consistent with the charter, our country's most fundamental and supreme law. Okay. I, I would also just add it to that, that a cornerstone of the charter and our principle of democracy is that accused people are presumed innocent. You've heard that countless times until proven guilty. And so that that's why the law favors release on bail pending trial, not incarceration pending a hearing. And that's also protected under the charter. Okay. And you said the word though favors the release. So is there any leeway in what is in the law to say, in some cases, we need to perhaps do more than that. If somebody has come before a judge and has repeatedly violated bail conditions, what is the leeway there? Oh, absolutely. There's discretion uh, and the um, uh, public safety is a um, significant factor to be considered. Uh, but in general, you know, all things considered, if the law leans towards release, because the person is not yet proven guilty. But uh, absolutely public safety is to be considered, but you can't create a blanket policy. The judge has to apply the law to each individual case. And if you think the law is too lenient, then you need to um, amend the law, which is not a simple process. It's You have to do it in a thoughtful way, consistent with the charter. And we, as the CBA, Canadian Bar Association, representing over 38,000 uh, you know, lawyers, judges, academics, law students across Canada, we would want to be consulted to help do that in a thoughtful way that is consistent with the Charter. Where is the line for public safety then, Aleem? So if somebody has 100 things on their record and they show up and this is 101 and they still get released on bail, the public would like to know, how does that happen? Well, first of all, I'd say a lot of these anecdotes are that are circulating now and the finger pointing for political points against judges, a lot of the stories are not accurate, but in a, a particular case, and I also say that our judiciary is highly intelligent, well-trained. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say envy of the world, very thoughtful people. Uh, but absolutely public safety is a consideration uh, when a judge, uh, when, when, when what the crown is recommending and what the judge is considering um, so each individual case has to be considered. If there is uh, an anecdote out there that uh, seems outrageous, I would ask you to dig a little deeper to see if that is accurate. 
but in any case, uh, if you feel the law is too lenient, as I said, uh, then, uh, you know, d- don't just simply point a finger at the prosecutor or judge. Look at the law and look at ways it could be thoughtfully amended. In, in what ways are you saying, though, that it would be inaccurate? Are you saying the record isn't what the record is? Like, maybe you could explain to people why what, it, it's inaccurate. Well, a lot of politicians and media are simply throwing out, oh, well, there's somebody with 100 uh, convictions and they've been released. And there was a story in the media recently about two stories that were proven that were not uh, releases on bail, but uh, releases by the police. So all I'm saying is, if you have a, you know, in a particular situation, uh, you need to look to see if the story is actually true. If it is, then, uh, you know, we'd have to discuss why was that decision made and and, uh, what were the circumstances. Okay, so I guess my, going back to my other question then about public safety, what are the parameters around using public safety uh, as the reason for keeping somebody behind bars? Like, what does it take for a judge to say public safety means this person should be kept behind bars? Uh, all I can say is there's a number of factors to be considered and that public safety is a significant one. Uh, it's not a, a, a blanket rule that some somebody has X number convictions uh, automatically they're denied bail. The judge has to look at what are the circumstances, what, are, what is the charge, what is the history, uh, what is uh, the potential threat to public safety, and make an individual decision. Uh, and it, I don't personally practice criminal law, but I, I know that it is applied individually to each case very thoughtfully. And, uh, as, and as I said, the, the judge can't just uh, um, you know, insert a popular opinion. They have to apply the law as it's written and as as it is uh, interpreted by the higher courts. So are you saying that the law must be written in a way so that it is specific for when a judge sends somebody to jail? No, I'm just saying that the if you think the law is too lenient as it is written, that is the purview or the prerogative of the federal government to look at the law and see if it needs to be uh, amended. Uh, It doesn't help to, you know, point fingers at the judiciary, one of the key three branches of, you know, a democratic society. You know, they're undermining the trust in the judiciary. They're applying the law. If the law is flawed, sometimes it is, uh, then, you know, it needs to be thoughtfully amended, consult with the uh, experts with the lawyers, the academics with our organization and other stakeholders and uh, amend it. But as I said, when you have a society that believes in the principle of someone is innocent until proven guilty, the law will always and the charter will mandate that uh, it does uh, err on the side of release uh, pending a, a trial uh, when guilt has not yet been proven. But absolutely that public safety will come into that consideration. Right. I I don't think it's, for me anyway, it's not necessarily about pointing fingers. I think what I want to know and what some people want to know is where is the disconnect happening, Aleem, in that if it's not the, if it's not, you know, that, and if it's not judges and if it's not the lawyers 
uh, and if public safety is taken into consideration, then why do we keep hearing about these cases? Well, I think it part of it is politics. It's easier to, if there is a very complex societal problem, to point fingers and to try and, uh, you know, say it's just a very simple solution that judges need to be, uh, prosecutors need to be uh, keeping more people behind bars. But we know that there's it, it all these complex societal issues between on recidivism, uh, you know, mental health problems, addictions, uh, so many fundamental issues that need to be tackled to address crime in society. Uh, and, you know, I think there's this trend right now in the uh, among media and politicians to uh, simply uh, try and look for, uh, you know, to shift blame and, and uh, provide us a simple answer to a complex problem. Sure. I understand that. I guess I'm still trying to provide some answers to the people. Like I want to explain the context to people. So when you say that, yes, there is room for public safety, what is the legal definition then of public safety? Like, is it imminent threat? Is it likelihood? Like, how do we define that? Well, as I said, I don't practice criminal law personally, but uh, so I, I don't know the finer points of how public safety is defined under the criminal code, but certainly all of those you mentioned would be considered by the judge. They, they're not, uh, uh, they don't take that consideration lightly. Okay, so if we want public safety to be more of a concern then when a judge or the legal system makes these decisions, does that have to be written into the law then? Do we have to change the law to say public safety must be paramount? Well, if you want to change how the law is applied, then yes, you have to amend the law. You can't simply direct judges to say, well, consider it this way, not that way, or, you know, ignore the rulings of the Supreme Court of Canada or don't follow, you know, interpret the statute in a different way. Uh, the government can't just dictate that by through a policy. They have to enact a change to the law if they think there's a problem with it and how it's being applied. And again, they have to consider uh, the, the fundamental charter rights of all the citizens. So, you know, the judges... They're doing the best they can with the law, applying it to the person there uh, who's before them impartially. All of us would want to be treated uh, that way, you know, in a fair and impartial way. And, and that's fundamental to the trust that the judiciary has. And it's also fundamental that they that that branch can't be interfered with uh, improperly by other branches of government. So that's but that's the, our fundamental principles of how our society has developed and that's why it's not just a simple solution but uh, if you do consider it to be a, a serious issue all right well thank you for explaining it to us this morning we appreciate your time thank you thank you very that's aline barmal who's the president of bc's canadian bar association uh interesting conversation i know we try to put this into context and it's hard for us to wrap our, our heads around because i think we think well it should be kind of simple right but clearly there are legal complications with everything now.